I'm in Dublin, where as in all cities, I ask myself, what do they do here better than any other place on earth? Answer, this stuff. This delicious, some say magical, probably nutritious, unparalleled beverage, this divine brew is so tasty, creamy, so near chocolatey in its rich, satisfying, buzz-giving qualities that the difference between the stuff here and the indifferently poured swill you get where you come from is like night and day. One is beer. The other, angels sing celestial trombones. Welcome to Friends of Anthony Bourdain. A podcast where we talk to friends and colleagues of the late Anthony Bourdain. I'm your host, Emily Fedner. I am a cook, a host, a content creator, and the owner of a pasta pop-up here in New York City. And I'm Fabrizio Vielpando. I've been working in the restaurant industry for over 10 years now, from dishwasher to short order line cook. I've never been a chef, but now since I've moved to food media, I have the pleasure and the honor of speaking to some excellent chefs in the industry. Like the chef we spoke to today, uh, Kieran Kavanaugh of the Gravediggers in Dublin. Kieran has an incredible story. It's not every day you meet someone that is the seventh generation to run a, a pub. Yeah. In the, like that, that means it's, it was around in the 1800s. His own personal history with his family was fascinating to listen to. And But he was explaining to us the perfect way to pour a Guinness pint, which was making my mouth water. Yes, we actually time. needed to go get yeah. a pint after speaking <laughs> to him. It was really cool to talk to Karen, who because we, we speak to all sorts of people um, on the podcast, everyone from people who knew Bourdain before he was Bourdain to people who were fans first. And that's kind of where... Kieran fell because mm-hmm. he just spoke so highly and uh, of of Anthony Bourdain and was just such a fan, like many of us in the restaurant industry are, of Anthony Bourdain before he actually got to meet Bourdain in Dublin, where they spent some time at Kieran's family pub. And in listening to this his story of just, I don't want to get too into it because I I love the way that Kieran tells it, but just the fact that he got to meet him and it seemed a little impromptu. And also a dream come true and just sit down and enjoy the beautiful simplicity of just a pint, a good bite, and good conversation. Connell, a hearty stew of sausages, bacon, onion, and potatoes, slow simmered in stock, which is definitely a what's not to like situation, right? No greater. You hear about it, you want it. This is definitely a scenario where, you know, they do say don't, don't meet your heroes, but Kieran did and it worked out better than he could have ever imagined. It was also really fun to talk to Kieran about his life in the culinary world and everywhere he's traveled and cooked and how he eventually did come back to his family's pub and start a food program there. Obviously, the pub is known for amazing pints of beer, but Kieran really took things to the next level with his food, um, some of which Anthony Bourdain tried and also sent me and Fab especially fab, I guess, on a rabbit hole of Googling Irish and British food. So we're going to, what was it? Oh, coddle. We, yes, we spoke about coddle. Which uh, I can't wait to try. I hope that me and Emily someday uh, get to hopefully hang out with Kieran, grab a pint and uh, be in Dublin yeah. someday. So we hope you enjoy this episode with Kieran. And if you're anything like me and fab, you will find yourself with a very strong hankering to go to Dublin and sit down to have a pint. 
But until then, enjoy our conversation with Kieran Kavanaugh. We're really excited to speak to you today about your connection to Anthony Bourdain and the restaurant industry. So um, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, I'm Kieran Kavanaugh. I'm a chef. Uh, I've been a chef for 33 years now. Uh, I grew up in a pub called John Kavanaugh's The Grave Diggers in Dublin, Ireland. It's been in my family since 1833. So uh, I'm one of the seventh generation to be in the pub. I started food. My family took over the pub 50 years ago this year, and we're 190 years old this year. And uh, I, I started food there 20 years ago next year. So it's uh, it's been here. We've been here a while. And that I is something there. not many people can ever say. <laughs> yeah, I grew yeah. up in a House pub, and yeah, that's yeah, pretty cool. You got to go fly over there and catch a I know. little a pint of history. My my twin sister actually lived in Dublin. I actually just texted her to see if she's been to Gravediggers. I'm sure she has. I feel like Dublin is a place people just fall in love with. I know many people who've left New York and the States to just move to Dublin. What would you say draws people in? Well, there's a huge connection, obviously, between Dublin and New York. A lot of Irish people went over there and uh, set up family. Like, you know, there's three, four generations of uh, Irish and Italian people who've been over there since the 40s or whatever, or the 1800s. So we get a lot of people coming back home and people studying, obviously, like the colleges like Trinity College and UCD. And also when you come to Europe, it's kind of place you can start and then work inland because like mm-hmm. an island, it's kind of hard to get out of. Either you fly in and Europe or a lot of people do the last stop actually on the way, way back home. To the state. Have you spent a good amount of time in New York City? I've never been to New York yet. No. Plan to oh, go, okay. uh, oh, I was going to ask you if you have any uh, good pub recommendations. You've never been to New York City? I have. Uh, I helped kind of set up the Guinness situation at the Dead Rabbit in New York. So they oh, came yeah, over and asked it's... me how to uh, set up the perfect pint according to our family tradition. So mm-hmm. I gave them a few secrets and they have done a good job, I believe. I've yet to taste it. So hopefully soon I'll get to taste it over there. And that's I was, one, of the, I was there. one of the pair of. Yeah, no, I was there. I mean, I've been there a few times now. One of my favorite they, spots. New yeah, York. they wash the glasses yeah. the same way we do, which is the most important thing about pints of guinness so it's uh okay we're gonna have to we're gonna have to get into guinness etiquette and i remember that being a very important aspect of anthony bourdain's visit to grave diggers so yeah speaking of which the reason we're all here we love to just start by asking you know what was it like meeting anthony bourdain can you remember your first meeting when it was and your first impression of him well, my first impression of him was when I read his book. I was working in Italy. I was a head chef in a restaurant around 2000. And I stayed, I came home in 2003. And I started watching YouTube of all the stuff that I couldn't see when I was in Italy. I got this huge connection with traveling and the same kind of style of music he liked and stuff like that. And then I read his book. And then when I met my wife, uh, we were dating. I gave her the book and said, hey, you're going to date a chef. This is the book you got to read. And that book I gave her, he signed it for us when we met him. I got wind that he was coming over to Dublin through a producer, a guy called Paddy Daly. And he'd worked with Tony on No Reservations Ireland. So he knew Tony quite well. And he asked me, hey, uh, Tony Bourdain is coming to the pub. Uh, Do you know him? And I said, not personally, but I love his work. Wow. In my Mm -hmm. head, I was going, wow, this is is amazing. Because this guy, the Tony stuff to me, I never thought I'd meet him. I just thought it was this guy's legendary... Uh, the way he could capture kitchens, not not as food, you know, you know, we can all do pommes frites, you know, and, and steak, you know, but it's the way he could describe the atmosphere in the kitchen and the people, the camaraderie, the, the timekeeping, the craziness of people, you know, it's just, it was on point. 
So uh, I asked him, oh, yeah, I, I know Tony. And uh, Paddy said, well, he's coming here on the 16th of June, uh, 2012. And I said, oh, cool. Yeah, that's Bloomsday, which is a big Dublin festival for James Joyce. And I said, is he coming here for food? And he said, no, just for a pint. That's the, how I got wind of him coming. So it was like two months beforehand, counting down the days. And every 16th of June, we always do a different kind of menu. And uh, it's all around pints of Guinness. So his idea was he wanted to come and have a, the perfect pint of Guinness. Paddy Daly, the producer, fixer guy, said, you got to go to the Gravediggers. John Cavanagh's Gravediggers pint is probably on. You might get it just as good, but not better. They rocked up. I have so many questions. I love yeah. beer. I'm not specifically a Guinness drinker, but Anthony Bourdain spoke so highly of the Gravediggers pint. What makes a perfect Guinness pint? Yeah, um, we've been practicing quite a lot for quite a long time. Um, we sell quite a lot of Guinness. It's air main cellar uh, weight. My food is something else, but the actual pub itself is based on pints of, of Guinness. When Tony came over, unfortunately... The Travel Channel hadn't got permission or whatever happened. They couldn't use the word Guinness or any logo of Guinness on the glass. So everything, if you watch the episode, the layover, Guinness is never mentioned. So it's I did best. just notice that. It's you the, just call it a pint, a pint. Yeah, and he calls it the uh, Nectar of Gods, uh, Angel's Tears, <laughs> Mother's Milk. You go on all, if you watch the episode, you'll see the best Guinness ad without mentioning Guinness. What makes a perfect pint of Guinness is, one, you got to sell a lot of it. It's got to be your star. It's got to what makes the, our pub is a beautiful old pub. That's it. But our pints are really good. And that brings lovely people who can make conversation. We don't have music, no TV, no Wi-Fi. It's just pints mm. and a few other drinks. And then when he came along, he got that. He saw the pint, but unfortunately he made a mistake. He drank it without letting it settle. So when you buy a, when you get buy a pint, it's double poured. So you pour just over the harp and then you let it sit for three minutes. And then you top it up again, and then you let it sit for two minutes and you drink it. So when he got it, he we topped it up for him, and he just, before let it settle, he just drunk a third of it. And I said, Tony, what are you doing? He said, he said, I've been waiting so effing long for this pint, I don't care. So the next pint, he let it settle properly. So now anybody who comes into the pub and drinks it without letting it settle, we call her Bourdain after Tony. <laughs> Very few people do it, thank God. you got to let it settle. It's got to go dark as it can. The head gets nice and round, and you drink it when it's settled. Uh, you got to wash your glasses really well, and no detergents if you can. And if you do, make sure they're rinsed off really well. Stock rotation, good refrigeration. That's the most key for a pint of Guinness. And obviously, good conversation makes a pub and makes a pint. I have this never is, craved a pint of Guinness this, more this, than I do in this. this making my mouth Well, actually, in the... after, after the layover aired, I was really humbled uh, when I saw on Tony's Twitter that he went to New York and he got a pint of Guinness and he put the change and all beside the pint and he said, I got a sudden urge, I can't remember the quote, but I got a sudden urge to get a pint and it wasn't as good as Dublin. So like he wrote in our book uh, a quote about my food afterwards, but the main thing that he got about it was the pint. Mm. He just loved it. And the, the fact that everybody was just talking to him, uh, listened to him and... He listened a lot. And in the local pub in Dublin, that's what we do. If there's no music and no TV, and actually most of Ireland, that's what we do. Just talk and uh, drink, obviously. you got to come to Ireland. Yeah. Do you have more pride? I mean, this, is, this might be a tough question to answer, but do you feel more pride in the pints and the way you guys serve the pints or your food? Mm. Oh, well, that's uh, – well, the pub's been in the, in the family for like seven generations. 
my food is there 20 years, which is kind of the generation. The pints have been there since draft Guinness started in 1953. Before that was bottle Guinness. We used to bottle our own Guinness. So we've been there a long time. So I'm really proud of my family, my family history, what every cavern has done and their spouses, their siblings, their friends, whatever. That's what makes the pub so great. We are just custodians and it's going to hopefully go on to the next generation or whatever. And they might do something crazy and get a TV in. Wow. I don't know. <laughs> but I did food. And I, nobody would tell you 20 years ago that the grave diggers, John Cavanaugh's grave diggers, would be world renowned for food. And it's uh, it is. People. So it's, it's, yeah, the old bar is 1833. And that's just drinking. Mm. And that's where you go. And that's the whole thing. That's John Cavanaugh's. That's the grave diggers. The second part is where my family built in 1979. And that's more of a, it was a lounge kind of place to hang out. Older people have a drink, quiet drink, no kids. And then I came back in 2000, 2004 as a chef. I've been traveling for 15 years and then uh, came back with lots of ideas. Slowly, slowly started doing stuff in a very small kitchen. And now we've got 23 staff from four staff. So it's, it's great. It's good. So I'm proud of both, but I'm really proud of being a cavern. I'm really proud of the pints. But I'm really, really proud of what we've done food-wise because it's brought the family together. It's brought the community together. I found a wife because of it. You know, I met Tony Bourdain because All of it. good things. So uh, I, I can give you a list of good things about it. I can also give mm -hmm. a really, really good list of other stuff, but let's keep positive. <laughs> the challenges of the restaurant industry, we're familiar. Can you tell us about your food? Is it traditional Irish food? What's your perspective? Uh, no, it's not really traditional Irish food, I don't think. Uh, I'm Irish, so yeah, it's kind of Irish food because I'm making it. Uh, my staff are from all over the world, which is amazing. I've got great people from Philippines, Malaysia, uh, Brazil, uh, Dublin. So I've traveled a lot and the pub is quite small. So when I proposed the family to do a, a kitchen, they weren't so into what kind of food. They thought I was just going to do like Irish pub food, which is roast dinners, and now it's become burgers and wings and stuff like that, like bar food. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to do something that we would have had back in 1833 or 1850. There's a stew called coddle, and Tony actually had it. That was a traditional family dish passed down from family to family. I was working behind the counter and asked all my customers which was the, uh, the food memory they had. And they had like loads, like liver and onion, and stuffed heart, and tripe, and coddle, 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 coddle. And then it was like, when was the last time you had coddle? Oh, last week. When was the last time you had tripe? Oh, three years ago, 20 years ago. So I just started to coddle sandwiches, and now it's become kind of like I have an Irish spring roll, which is bacon, cabbage, and potato with a cider and whiskey sauce, which is like having an Irish dinner in your mouth. It's really cool. You just play around with food. So it's like I do a, like a traditional Dublin stew as well, like a beef and Guinness one and a coddle. And they'll have a chowder, but the menu changes daily, so you never know. Coddle's always yeah. there. The pig's feet I don't do anymore. That's the dish I also did for Tony. Because he wasn't supposed to actually eat in the pub. He was only supposed to drink in the pub. That was the deal. And on the day, they rang me up and said, hey, can you uh, feed Tony? He's coming in late from Paris. And I said, sure. And I kind of thought he was going to eat. So I had done this pig's feet recipe. And I cooked for a really long time in the oven with some cider, apple cider and spices and stuff. And I gave him coddle. And he'd never heard of a coddle. And he never had pig's feet like this. So if you watch the layover at Dublin, you'll see him being blown away because he never he never knew about it. It looked incredible. Well, well I was going to ask you, um, for the people listening that don't know what coddle is, how yeah. would you describe the dish? It's really good for radio. Like, thankfully, we don't have a picture of it. It's it's all boiled <laughs> stuff, basically. Um, Dublin is a very small city with a lot of pig farms, so bacon is their thing. So we used to, on Friday, we couldn't eat meat or bacon because of Catholic region. Uh, 
beliefs, so you had to have fish. So on Thursday evening, no refrigeration, you'd boil up your bacon with some onion and potato. And then on Saturday, after your fast and had your fish, you'd have a few pints and then you'd eat this coddle, which would be bacon ribs or bacon collar, pieces of potato, really, or bacon really salty. Uh, sausages, a small cocktail breakfast sausage potatoes and onions and it's a broth but back in the day it would be any kind of salty bacon you had and now mm. my recipe i've got ribs in it bacon ribs collar uh, sausage potato onion and some day-old bread and some butter on it and that's it nice. so good. with a, pint, it, with a good. pint it's it's great like it'll fix you if you're hungover you're sorted it literally does it sounds like a hangover meal and my it's family is bowl, yeah exactly okay. I'm, I'm no stranger to the potato, onion, cabbage, you know, chunks of meat style of eating being Eastern mm. European. So that sounds yeah. perfect. I was gonna oh, say, yeah. I feel like... It's very similar. I think every culture has that kind of one pot hug. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, there's a Polish soup, like a, a Polish bacon potato soup that I've had mm -hmm. before. My family's from Mexico. So we have menudo, which is just like okay. a tripe stew. Which I is, love yeah. tripe. Spicy, with a yeah. bunch of lime. I cooked some tripe last week as a kind of bet right. with myself because I, I said I... <laughs> I bet you I can sell the tripe to somebody. So I made 10 portions. I sold five. Like tripe in Ireland's got a really bad rap. It's Why? Like, oh, it's back in the day. There's nothing to eat except tripe. And like, uh, those days are gone. Nobody wants to do that anymore. You know, but isn't that uh, how all of our beloved foods start? It starts as the thing nobody wants to eat, like the poor yeah. people food, the leftovers yeah. that then become yeah. a, a beloved staple. But unfortunately, if you make a really nice tripe dish, somebody might think it, uh, a chicken tender is probably nicer. I don't know. It's yeah. easier to eat. Maybe tripe is just not there yet. I think maybe it needs a little bit more time to become it'll beloved. Never, and it'll never... never get there. It'll always be that little side thing that everybody loves, but they'll never order. Wait, mm. how, so how is Irish tripe prepared? I've never had it. It's really badly prepared in Ireland. Actually, my mom is from England and they do it the same way. They boil it and they, they bleach it and boil it and then they boil it and they boil it and they let it kind of go tepid. Then they mix it with milk and onions. And in, in Yorkshire, they just let it go cold and chop it up and put vinegar on it and pepper. All right. So, so now I think I understand why people don't know to try. No. <laughs> Same reason people in Ireland don't eat much fish anymore or because of boiled fish back in the day. All we did is boiled cod, salmon, herring, anything yeah. was boiled. I think it's the, it's the boiling of it all that is really yeah. the yeah. common, common well, thing here. You, you well, we didn't have the money for the, for the, to, to, the to make the fire. So you just had a fire heated a house in the cauldron with coddle in it or a, a, a polish stew with cabbage and bacon or whatever you know it's that's the thing it's the center of the house it's the cauldron you know gets the houses warm you got fed it does make sense yeah. i wonder if you were to make like a crispy tripe dish if anyone would try that you can try lots of things of tripe you could probably yeah but they'll still know it's tripe well if i come to dublin i will be trying tripe if you have it on the menu okay i yeah okay it, yeah, Promise. I bet you I was only sell two or three of anyway that day. <laughs> and I'll be one of the three. <laughs> Anthony Bourdain tragically passed away on June 8th, 2018. His death brought attention to the issue of mental health and highlighted the fact that mental health struggles can affect anyone, regardless of their public image or achievements. Following Bourdain's passing, there's been an increased awareness and discussion surrounding mental health in the culinary and entertainment industries. Many celebrities and professionals have opened up about their own struggles, aiming to reduce the stigma associated with mental health issues. 
It's so important to continue conversations about mental health awareness and provide support for those facing challenges. That's why this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp's mission is to make therapy more affordable and more accessible. And this is so important because finding a therapist can be super hard, especially when you're limited to the options in your area. BetterHelp is a platform that makes finding a therapist easier because it's online, it's remote, and by filling out a few questions, BetterHelp can match you to a professional therapist in as little as a few days. It's easy to sign up and get matched with a therapist. It's betterhelp.com slash F-O-A-B. There's a link in the podcast description. Get started today and enjoy 10% off your first month. Discount code F-O-A-B will be automatically applied. Actually, BetterHelp was my first foray into therapy because I really wasn't sure how to get started and I had uh, experienced a really big life event. It was the first platform I turned to to demystify therapy, make it easy, and also it was very affordable. So very exciting to be able to partner with BetterHelp and spread the therapy gospel. It's something that I know you and I, Fab, really believe in and talk about often. Especially with resources like BetterHelp that makes it more accessible. I mean, we do speak so often about mental health struggles in the restaurant industry, making therapy affordable and accessible to line cooks and restaurant workers and people who might not have traditional health insurance is something that I feel so strongly about. So highly recommend society will thank you. You will thank you. Uh, you know, your family and friends will thank you. Young men, please seek therapy. It's worked wonders for me. It's betterhelp.com slash F-O-A-B. There's a link in the podcast description. Get started today and enjoy 10% off your first month. Discount code F-O-A-B will be automatically applied. All right. So you had traveled a bunch before coming back to the family business. Where did you travel? Where did you cook? I studied in the West of Ireland when I was 17. There was a, like a Cajun college, a, a government run uh, Cajun college. I did two years there. And then I went to London in 1990. And I didn't really like it much. I worked, I worked in the BBC canteen in the in the studios, and it was very busy. Didn't like it, and I came home. And then I got a job straight away in Geneva, in Switzerland, and I worked there for like a year and a half. Learned some French, learned some French cuisine. I'd already studied French cuisine in school, in college. And then I uh, got a job for Club Med, the French company, Club Mediterranean. And then I, they sent me to Sicily. I did a, a year in Sicily in Club Med, and there was like two and a half thousand people in the village, just kind of self-catering, or, or what do you call it, uh, self-service kind of food. And I'd worked with chefs from all over the world. It was great. Common language was French, so I learned staff meals from guys from the Basque region and staff meals from guys from Mexico. It was brilliant. And then I did that. Uh, the head chef didn't speak English, so we were going to go to work in the Bahamas. So they sent me to uh, San Salvador, Columbus Isle. Club Med, and I did uh, just over a year there, about 14 months there. I worked in the Italian restaurant making pizza in the Bahamas, which I think is the most surreal thing ever, that people were spending a, sh- a lot of money to have pizza made by an Irish guy in the Bahamas. But anyway, <laughs> it was nice is- pizza. I learned in Sicily it was nice pizza, but still, I did that, and I came home, and I decided to go to Italy for a bit to learn some Italian. And I got a job for Guinness Italia, pulling pints of Guinness, and I stayed in the place for about six months and I ended up staying there for eight years in the east coast of Italy. If you fly to Bologna, it's near Rimini, a place called Cesanatico. And a small fishing town and I worked there as a in a hotel and then in a restaurant as a head chef. And then I came home and yeah, here I am. Out of every place you cooked, every food culture you experienced, what's your favorite? 
a staff meal made by anybody in the Bahamas in Sicily. I remember having a Basque lunch. Uh, one of the chef's mother sent down a, a care package with foie gras, bread and sauterne wine. So we all sat around on the floor, no cutlery, uh, no glasses, just passed it around. That was, that was one of my best meal memories ever. And it cost us nothing, but I'll never forget it. And it was cool. Really cool. That's so that's amazing. As you I've were having more, but that really it really stands out because you know now you can have a food memory and spend you spend a lot of money to to make it, but that was just it just happened. It was natural. Well, it's it's those memories that are not the not necessarily the most expensive. You know, all of us go to restaurants, all of us experience different aspects of the culinary world, but it's the ones that are so special and personal and have a story mm. and really evoke a time and a place. I feel that that end up sticking with you. Like the, the, the staff meal thing is so real. Cause when I worked as a line cook, now I remember all of those staff meals, you, you know, I can go get Colombian food somewhere in Queens, but it's not the same as the no. Colombian guy who cooks staff mm. meal at the restaurant. And that's mm. what I another reason I actually don't eat pasta is because I eat not as much as I should do or do or can because I lived there for such a long time. I had pasta for staff meals every day. And I just, I've had, I've had so many different types of pastas. Like it's no more, not, not the moment, the kind between, of... between you and I, I can still, I, I, I can eat pasta every single day. I cannot picture really? ever yeah. getting sick of it. Favorite I don't food. think it's in my DNA. I think I've more potato in my DNA than I have pasta. That's true. You know, know, my, my family is from Ukraine. So potatoes were what I grew up with, but I feel like okay. I'm potatoed out a little bit. Mm-hmm. You've clearly traveled so much. Did you have a chance to sort of talk to Tony about maybe like similar spots that you had traveled? Yeah. So basically, when they when they finished uh, filming, uh, Tony was waiting for his. We'd say goodbye, and he signed a book, and you know it was good, whatever. And then he was going to get a taxi and head off home. And then my wife went by with a bucket of cockles and mussels mm-hmm. for uh, one of the uh, producers, and he said he was smoking a cigarette outside. He said, "Ah, fuck, I'll stay." So myself and himself went in and there's a table just when you go in the bar and we sat there for five pints and we just, so I'm sitting beside Tony Bourdain. Tony Bourdain's my hero. I never met him. Next fall, I've been talking to him, cooked for him. He loves it. Uh, he's staying. He's having a drink with me. Wow. What am I going to do? This is amazing. And my wife will tell you, I was so nervous that morning because this guy is just legend. Like he was just brilliant. Like the guy had it. Mm-hmm. He could explain what it was like to be in the shits in the kitchen. Like, excuse my French, but it's, you know, it's hard to explain it. Because you might work in a kitchen for six months. Hopefully you do. You learn something. But like when you're in the sh- it's really tough. And when chefs talk, that's what we talk about. Because you can get so fucking low that, you know, you can only get better. You know, you can only get over the line or whatever. So we sat there and we got the first pint. I paid for it and they had a tab. So he said, no, it's on a tab. I said, no, no, this is from me, bro. And we just sat there and I said, um, yeah, so um, what's, what's the last thing you cooked? And he says, well, I don't cook so much anymore because Octavio was doing all our wrestling stuff. So he, it was all meat, 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 meat. So that's all he was eating was meat. Um, and then we just started talking about tattoos, uh, travel, uh, music. Our music taste would be quite similar, I guess, in ways. Um, we talked about um, depression, anxiety. I was going through a bit of a thing at the time. Uh, with my family and I was kind of thinking of quitting and you know he kind of said you know if you had this New York they'd be queuing down the road to get into it you know to be around the corner to get into it and he was right they are they're they're coming here every day and all of Tony's people are coming every day and people who never knew about Tony know about Tony because of the pub and vice versa Uh, he's become a huge part of what we are and that's stunning you know it's amazing and uh, 
I was so happy that he had a pint in one of the best pubs you can ever go to because that's what my family has ever done. But then to like our food, to like my company, to like our, our staff, our family, it was even better. Like, he had so much time for everybody. Five pints in Ireland is about four and a half hours. That's what I usually, I hung out with him for. And uh, the crew came back on the Thursday to do the shoot, to do all the background stuff, you know, the stuff they can't do in one day. And uh, it was just special. It was just, um, when you talk about things like that over a pint, it's, it's special. It's obviously, this is someone who impacted you well before you met him, and then you did mm. get to meet him. What would you say is your main impression, your last, the lasting legacy that Anthony Bourdain has had on you and the way you live? How I live, thanks to Anthony Bourdain, yeah. is like, uh, it's always tomorrow, definitely, that's for sure. Um, you can always, you know, uh, you turn up for work, you do your best, you turn up in time, that's it. I think uh, he was a conduit for a lot of people who would work in their business that struggle to get out there how they are, what they want to do, where they want to be. You know, it's, mm. it's a tough business. It's not for everybody. And front of house, back of house, kitchen porters can become rock stars some days, you know. You just don't know. There's tomorrow. Yeah. And that's why I was really upset when he passed away is because he always had that in his head, I think. And what he installed to me when I met him in 2012 was that, that there's always tomorrow. You can always get that done, you know, whatever, or turn up. That's, that's, the, that's the irony, I guess, because, you know, he taught you persistence and there's always tomorrow. And then well, obviously you got to do that. You got to think about tomorrow. You got to do your menu. You got to do your orders, you know, it's uh yeah, same with life. Right. And, yeah. and like you said, it's right. Uh, I mean, I remember the first time I read kitchen confidential, I was 21, 20 years old, just, uh, nothing going for me working as, you know, bus boy, dishwasher. Uh, and I remember just reading it because a line cook that I was friends with, he recommended it. And I just, yeah. I remember walking after reading the book, I remember walking into work, fuck it. I'm picking up dirty glassware, but it just felt like, like a part of something bigger. I think, you know what, you know what I think about in hearing you say that and hearing both of you guys talk about the industry, and I obviously have spent a lot of time in the industry as well. I think that that that, that book coming out and Anthony Bourdain's presence in general in, kind of instilled all of us and people with the industry in the industry with more kind of just respect and pride in what we do because there's so many times like as you've mentioned several times there's times where it's low and it is yeah. busy and it's stressful and you're like honestly what the fuck am I doing and why yeah. am I doing this and yeah. I want to quit but yeah. um I remember reading that book and I had started working in the industry when I was 15 as well in front of house roles and then transitioned to other things but I remember being like well this is cool. And having the ability to persevere and having that ability to look forward and just handle it and handle all yeah. the shit that gets thrown at you in the industry is cool and deserves respect and deserves admiration. I feel like he's what set the world onto that path of, of really finding respect in those day-to-day -day tasks. And I think he might have struggled a little bit because like myself, I'm a classically trained chef. So I remember going to uh, restaurants where there was a butcher, there was a baker, there was a bread guy, you know. It wasn't all bought in. It wasn't pre-prepped anything. You had to know how to butcher an animal. And it was a respect of who did what. So if the sauce chef was mm -hmm. a sauce chef, you did not touch his pans. You didn't touch his knife. You know, I worked in Switzerland in 1991. You could not talk in that kitchen. There was pictures on the wall of what you had to do, and you did not talk anything. You said nothing. You didn't talk about football games. You didn't talk about anything. You just, it was we chef, no chef, and that was it, chef. So a lot of older chefs now find they've lost that structure to, that's gone. So a lot of kitchens, there's very few of your interview 
beforehand. There's very few chefs who've got amazing restaurants now. There's a lot of really good restaurants, but they're not classically run. So there's mm-hmm. kind of like yin yang going, going on with people. So I'm lucky enough to see them both. I prefer what's going on right now. Being 21 in the kitchen where you couldn't talk and express your talent was tough. So, uh, you know. And here's uh, my question. Did that really impact the difference in how good the food tastes? Because isn't there just something to be said for enjoying your job and having that camaraderie and talking and then the food's still good? I think it was total regimental. It was just uh, yes chef, no chef. And the butcher does that and he brings you to meat over. You cook it. The sauce chef finishes it. He, the sous chef says it's okay and the head chef said it's away. And that's how it worked. And that's how it worked. Now, when I was doing that, there was guys also 21 my age, head chefs in London, uh, Mark and Pierre White. Well, he was older than that. But anyway, you know, those people were doing it, you know, and uh, they came from classically trained places too, but they left it when they were very young. So I don't know. It's, it's, uh, yeah, the I food is, reading. it's all about what the customer wants too, you know, like I remember silver service, like so stiff and like you're, you're st- serving it and people are like, oh no, that's it. You know, you didn't have any integration with people. Yeah. The waiter was living, you didn't talk to them. And now some of the best evenings you have is because the waiting staff are deadly, you know, or go, you can hang out with them. But no one places, wants that anymore, you know, you know? no you one know? wants. And like you said, it's about the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, Tony was always great at that, which was fantastic. Yes. He's a great listener. Yeah. I thought that's what Mike got from me. Just listened. Uh, when I was chatting to him, he listened, 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 and then he got something back, but it was, that was great. It's just, and also you got that quiet moment when you're having a pint and you're not saying anything. And you're going, oh, Jesus Christ, I'm having a pint with Tony Bourdain. Here I am. And he's probably saying the same thing. Jesus Christ, I'm having a pint with Kieran Kavanagh here in the pub. But it was great. It was just really cool. Um, it's so it's surreal. Well, if you feel comfortable answering, there is a question that we'd like to ask. Do you remember where you were the moment you found out about Anthony's passing and how that affected you? Yeah, I, uh, I, was, yeah, I do. I was working in the pub, uh, in the kitchen. I was prepping. And... Uh, Paddy Daly, the producer who fixer who brought uh, Tony to the pub, rang me. He said, uh, "It's it's going to be in the media soon that Tony's passed away, and I've given your number to some people, as in some newspapers and and, and radio, because he thought I'd be the guy to talk to if they wanted to talk to." And uh, I was in shock. Uh, I got a, a couple of messages from other friends of mine who knew that I knew Tony, and uh, yeah, I didn't believe it. And uh, I was very, very upset because of how I remember Tony and how I was talking to him that day, that day when I'd met him about what we had talked about. I'd, I'd watched his social media a bit beforehand and it was very dark and mm-hmm. his music wasn't the same that we were into before. And it was just, I could, I don't know. I don't know. I would have liked him come for a pint in the chat beforehand because I could, there was a vibe there. I didn't, uh, I was really upset when Tony went and then, like when he came here in 2012, nobody knew who he was. Like he was just some American guy with a TV crew. And TV crews come and go to, to Dublin. They come and go to pubs. We're lucky enough that our pub is quite well known. But when Tony came, he was one very tall and very special and talked and listened to everybody. And that's what I'll always remember for, from him and it. That's where it was. And it, it, now when he's famous and unfortunately because he's passed, a lot of people come and ask me who he was, what he was like and, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I miss him every fucking day, and it's 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 tough. You know, uh, his daughter's the same age as my my eldest brother's daughter, and uh, yeah, things like that just bring it back. Oh. Well, we appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, no worries, no worries. Have a pint in his honor. Yeah, I'll have um, numerous. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, well, I think Fab and I are gonna go have a. Yeah, well, I think the rule is you have 
you have one, three, five, forget. That's my rule. So like a, one is a quick one. That's it. Go home. You're fine. Have three. That's a night out. Five is a really special night. And seven is your party. <laughs> I don't know forgotten. if my body can handle seven seven pints of beer. Oh, we'll find that out later. <laughs> uh, well, you won't do in the states. You have got it done to Dublin. It's much different. Well, it's it's. I uh, actually I need to. I've yeah. always been wanting to go. My twin sister lived there, and she's actually going back soon. So I might tag on to her trip. And if there we do, go. I'm coming and to visit. Invite myself. And you're coming. Yeah. And we'll all just crack. go. And let's have pints. Excellent. Um, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Sorry, it was a quick one. Um, no worries. We've got our, no. We got to wrap up. We really, really appreciate your time and no sharing all your memories. And you've inspired us to get a pint and maybe have some bacon y soup. And I don't think I've ever, <laughs> I don't think I've ever, my mouth has watered so much. Your, your description of a pint has, needs to go down in history. You should just write a book about just the description. I don't even, I don't even think I like Guinness, but I, I need a Guinness. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I, tr I was away from home for a long time, so I didn't drink Guinness abroad. So if you're away from home for 15 years, that's why when I, when myself and the wife do the social media, I know what it's like not to have that pint when you're away. So I know exactly oh. what it tastes like when you come home. So, yeah. You know how to describe the sweet nectar of the gods. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Angels, angels tears. I can Mother's milk. Mother's milk. Mother's milk. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Friends of Anthony Bourdain. You can listen along wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, review. Let us know if there's someone you're dying for us to interview on the pod. And be sure to check us out on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, all the social media platforms at Friends of Anthony Bourdain.